We remain in the first chapter of Luke, beginning in verse 46. Luke 1, 46. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For He has had regard for the humble state of His bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, His servant, in remembrance of His mercy. As He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants or seed forever. The fathers, we consider Mary's song this morning. I pray that you will give us insight and understanding. Father, not so much into Mary, although we want to understand a little bit more about her part in all of this. But Lord, insight and understanding into our relationship with you. Uh, Father, this at this time, we just want to pause and recognize Christ in us. And recognize the wonder of Jesus coming into the world. And there is so much here. It seems to me, Father, year after year after year, we come back to the story of, of Jesus' birth. And yet, every year, it's fresh and new. And every year, there are insights to be gleaned that we have missed before. So I ask for that, not only this morning, but tonight, Tuesday night. I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us and teach us in this barn. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your word, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, even in the low-tech world of the first century, word had a way of traveling very quickly. And the events leading up to the birth of Christ, the Bible tells us, caused quite a stir in Judea. A lot of buzz, a lot of talk was going on, was going around. Luke chapter 1 verse 65 says, Fear came on all those living around them, that is, living around Zacharias and Elizabeth. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. So this news was getting out there. Today it would have spread via text and tweet and post. (laughs) Hashtag miraculous. Hashtag supernatural. Hashtag tis the season. (laughs) This word spread quickly. And it was the talk of all the towns and the water coolers and the dinner tables. People were gathering and talking about this marvelous miracle, really, of of old Elizabeth giving birth. And of Zacharias, the priest who went mute in the temple, claiming to see an angel. Everyone was talking. And all the chatter and all the noise and all the focus seems to have been on Zacharias and Elizabeth. While just four people on earth knew the real story, what was really taking place, that among all women, a humble, young, unknown maiden had been chosen to bear Israel's Messiah. Now, I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me in in reading Luke chapter 1 that all the conversation, all the talk was about Zacharias and Elizabeth, and no one was thinking about or knew about what was happening with young Mary, with Joseph of Nazareth. That was the obscure part of the story. That was the one that was somehow missed. The hidden mystery, if you will. The story relating to Mary. Now, in our age, in our day, Mary has been elevated, venerated, and idolized, and even deified by some. And yet, she was just a girl. She was just a girl. I was thinking about my Anna Marie this week. You see, Mary was right around that age, 14, 15, 16 years old, maybe at the oldest. She was a young girl, like any one of our middle school or or high school girls. Mary could have been in Jake's youth group. She was just about that age. Just a girl. Just like any of our girls. Just a girl who was visited by the angel Gabriel. (laughs) Just a girl who Elizabeth called the mother of my Lord. Just an ordinary girl of Nazareth. 
who would lay the Christ in the manger. Who would treasure His life in her heart. She'd mind His miracles, ponder His parables, misunderstand His mission, (laughs) despair in His death, and ultimately rejoice in His glorious resurrection. What a life that Mary ended up living. An ordinary girl who ended up with an extraordinary life, and it was one that she never asked for. One that Mary wasn't praying for, hoping for, looking for, or even thinking about. And what I want to consider this morning, and I don't believe I've ever done this before, is ask the question, why did God choose Mary? Why Mary? The last we hear of Mary before she arrives in Bethlehem, she's singing. She's there at the house of her cousin Elizabeth, and she's singing a song, and the song she sings, I think, better answers the question of why God chose Mary than anything else in Scripture. If you want to understand why the Lord picked this maiden out of all women, I think we see it in the song. The song is called the Magnificat. Not because of a certain feline, it's called the Magnificat, because it's the Latin translation of the first few words, my soul exalts the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. This song is similar in many ways to Hannah's song. Perhaps you know the story of Hannah back in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Hannah, the young uh, woman who was barren, could not have a child and cried out to the Lord constantly there at the tabernacle. She cried out and the old, the old priest Eli thought she was drunk at one point because she was weeping and so uncontrollable in her emotion about her position. And yet, she becomes pregnant. Not miraculously, but God blesses her, opens her womb as it were to allow the process to take place. And Hannah begins to sing a song, 1 Samuel chapter 2. And in fact, we won't do it this morning, but you can do a comparison between Hannah's song of 1 Samuel 2 and Mary's song here in Luke chapter 1, and they are very similar. Hannah sings out, My heart exalts in the Lord. My heart magnifies the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. And so Hannah begins to sing. Well, for Mary, like Hannah, the Magnificat is more than a song. It's actually a declaration from the depths of her heart. It's Mary processing what's going on, what's taking place, what God is doing inside of her. Why did God choose Mary? Well, if you want to jot a few things down, the first thing we note here is that Mary was purposed. Mary was purposed. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and that is significant. My soul exalts the Lord, she says. Soul, the Greek word, suke, it means mind, will. It's the seat of reason. It is the place of decision. The first words out of Mary's mouth as she sings there with Elizabeth is my soul exalts the Lord. And I believe that tells us it's not an emotional reaction she's having here. It's a decision that she's made. I have chosen to worship. I have chosen to magnify. She chooses to exalt God in her current circumstances of her own volition. What might have been on her mind instead of worshiping the Lord? Well, 14 years old, seeing angels, pregnant, not by choice. What's she going to tell her parents? How is she going to explain this one to mom and dad? What is she going to say to Joseph, her betrothed? How would she let him in on, on, this, on this miracle? And if Joseph even did believe her, what about the snubs of the cynics? How could they ever live in Nazareth with everybody knowing that she had this child seemingly out of wedlock? What is she going to do? How is Joseph going to be able to get work in Nazareth? Shunned by the community? What is this going to do? And on top of all that, how in the world do you raise God's Son? 
And if you pause for a moment and think about all that may have been on Mary's mind, the one thing we see really on her mind at the forefront of her thoughts is the magnification of God. My soul exalts the Lord. Now comparatively, Mary had a lot to be stressed out about, freaked out about, overwhelmed by, but her soul magnified the Lord. Psalm 34 verse 2 says, My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. And that's a good word. In fact, if Mary were here, I think maybe she might share that. I'll share it for her. Let's magnify the Lord in our minds. Let's take all the stress and the worry and the fear and the concerns, set it aside and magnify the Lord. Let that be where our minds go. Let's choose of our own volition to be a people who worship God in spite of all circumstance. Regardless of what may be going on that is out of our control, that we don't know how to even spin among our friends and in our culture. No, let's just set it aside and magnify the Lord. It's the best decision a mind can make. And so Mary magnifies the Lord. Secondly, not only was she purposed, but Mary was positioned. Positioned. Verse 47. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. God my Savior. I would underline that if I were you and your Bibles. God my Savior. Not God my husband. Not God my main squeeze. (laughs) Not God my co-equal. But Mary says, God my Savior. Like the prophet Habakkuk. Chapter 3, verse 18 says, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And Mary was well positioned. She knew she needed to be saved. Mary knew she needed a Savior. Mary of her own lips declares that she is a sinner in need of a Savior. God was her Savior. God was her salvation. And that is always the right position before God. Not only to choose to worship Him, But to position yourself before Him, recognizing without Him you are hopeless. Without Him you are lost. Without God, you are without hope in the world. God is my Savior. And He declared Himself to be that. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides Me, God pronounced. Isaiah 45, verse 21. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. And what was it that the angel told the shepherds on the hillside that night? Luke chapter 2, verse 11. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, for those of you who still struggle with the idea of Jesus being fully God, equal with God, Consider what we just heard. God speaks through Isaiah the prophet and says, There is no other Savior but me. And then the angels tell the shepherds, Today in Bethlehem, a Savior is born. There's only one. There's only one Savior. God, my Savior. The one in whom Mary rejoices. So understand that Mary's no Savior. She is just one among the saved. But if you think about her purpose and her position together, look at them a little more closely. The first two verses together, she says, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. My soul magnifies. My spirit has rejoiced. Soul, the mind, and spirit, the person, the heart. And which one came first? Was it... Her soul magnifying, or was it her spirit rejoicing that came first? Listen to the words again. My soul exalts the Lord. That's present tense. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Now that's actually the errorist tense, but it indicates past tense. Present tense and future. But it begins in the past. What are you saying, Rick? (laughs) Mary rejoiced in spirit first, and then magnified God in her soul. 
And that makes perfect sense theologically, biblically speaking, because faith begins in the Spirit and then moves to the mind. Faith isn't a mental decision at first. No, faith is a spiritual decision. Faith starts in the heart and moves to the mind. We need to understand this. We tend to flip it upside down, but that's why I've said it's not all about the facts. If it was just about getting down the facts of Jesus' existence, Jesus' birth, all the things that took place, and the facts are there. But if it was all about the facts, everyone would believe. It's not all about the facts. Faith starts in the heart. Faith is a rejoicing of the Spirit. Faith is given by the Spirit of God to the spirit of man or woman and then moves into the brain. And then is worked out in the brain as the Spirit has accepted Which is why you have among you friends and family who have been trying to work it out. And they can't make it all line up. That's because the heart is not ready. That's because the heart is still rebelling against the truth. The spiritual download goes to the Spirit first. It's one of the supernatural facts about this season that we've been talking about. Faith begins by the Spirit of God. Downloaded into the Spirit of the person. Rejoicing in God comes first. And then magnifying God with my mind. Are you following? We've read the verse a couple of times already, 1 Corinthians 12.3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And that line, by the way, is not just saying that no one can utter the words. A lot of people utter the words. No one can say it with the heart unless the Spirit has brought them to this place. God says, no one, Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him to me. The Spirit brings faith. And the Spirit is knocking on the door of the heart to offer faith constantly. The question is, will the heart open up and receive that faith? 2 Corinthians 3 verse 4 says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. What does that mean? It means even your faith didn't start with you. Even your faith began with the Lord and He gave it to you. He started that ball rolling. You rejoiced in that and then your mind began to kick in and understand and the facts began to lay into place. And that's how it works. It's got to start with faith. What does that mean for us? It means the first and best prescription for doubt is not evidence. It's worship. It's not apologetics. It's affection for the Lord. The best thing you can do when you're struggling in your life, when you have those thoughts come into your brain about, oh Lord, how could you allow this? Oh Lord, how could this be taking place? Lord, are you even listening to me? In that moment, the best thing you can do is stop and worship Him. And have affection for Him. Rejoice in the Spirit first. And then magnifying God in the mind will follow. It will come. Give yourself over to the relationship with Jesus. The history, the archaeology, the evidences, as I said, all the facts are there. But the facts are not what carry us. The relationship with Christ is what carries us. And that is a spiritual thing. And that is a heart thing. And so Mary says, my spirit has rejoiced in the Lord. And my mind now magnifies. The Bible says in Romans 10 verse 10, For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. And that rejoicing in spirit, by the way, I love that it's in the errorist tense because it's ongoing. It's past, it's present, it's future. My spirit has rejoiced. My spirit rejoices. My spirit will rejoice. And Paul said in Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Why did God choose Mary? Well, this girl was purposed, and this girl was positioned, and number three, Mary was poor. Mary was poor. Verse 48. He has had regard for the humble state, or the lowly state, of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, she says. Why, Mary? It's as if the Lord were saying, as some aspect of this, my gospel goes out to all the people of the earth, regardless of class, regardless of station, regardless of net worth. It goes to the lowliest of the low. Everyone is invited. It's never what 
any of us can bring to the table. It's about what Jesus brought to the table. And Mary recognizes this, that he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. In Luke 6, verse 20, we're told, turning his gaze toward the disciples, Jesus began to say, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now it's really cool. We'll get into this when we get around to Luke chapter 6. But Luke's telling of the Beatitudes is slightly different. It's a little more abrupt. It's a little more almost brash or right in your face. Rather than Jesus saying, as Matthew quotes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, the poor in spirit. He's talking about humility. We get that. No, Luke says, he said, blessed are you poor. And let those words just hang out there. And the Jews listening to that, I'm sorry, what? Blessed are you poor. First of all, that's an oxymoron. That's a contradiction in terms. Blessed and poor, no. (laughs) That doesn't work. You're blessed if you're rich. You're blessed if you're wealthy. You're blessed if there's lots of packages under the tree. That's blessed. And our, our world still buys that. Our world still thinks that our blessing comes in what we have, in the more stuff that we can obtain. And it totally flew in the face of current Jewish dogma that stated that the rich, the wealthy, and the blessed were the righteous ones. And the poor and the impoverished and the lowly of estate, wow, they were the sinners. Jesus spins the whole thing around and calls them blessed. Blessed are you poor. Well, Rick, isn't he talking about... Spiritual poverty? Well, it's interesting that Mary in her song says he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Bond slave means a female servant, the the translation there. But the humble state, the Greek for that is taponosis. And taponosis means low condition, it means to be poor, it means to be needy. It is the word that describes the condition of someone who has nothing. Now, when Jesus says blessed are the poor, yeah, there is the spiritual element. But we have to remember the Spirit is affected by the flesh. And what's going on in our lives physically is going to affect what's going on in our lives spiritually. And Mary was certainly a poor girl. Joseph was a poor carpenter. They lived in poor backwater Nazareth. But there's a blessing in having less. Don't you think so? Pastor Les being among us is a blessing, having less. Less is more, you know? More or less. Um, (laughs) Honestly, gang, the less I have, the less I have to be worried about. And when I don't have much, I don't have much to lose. And when I'm already lowly, it's not so far down to my knees. And Mary's in that place. She just doesn't have a whole lot to bank on. She doesn't have a whole lot to count on. Her marriage to Joseph at least brings her some security. But other than that, not a whole lot. Jesus said in Luke 18.25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And why is that? Because the rich man is packing so much stuff, he's got to squeeze through there. And of course the apostles said, as, as I would react... Well, then who can be saved? Because I've got a lot of stuff. I've got too much stuff. Cheryl and I are back at it again, going round and round. You know, we're, we're coming up to Christmas morning and, and all the kids, and, and with every kid is more stuff, you know? And I think kind of like George Bailey, why do we have to have all these kids anyway? <laughs> Corey's here, he can laugh because he was the first and he's like, yeah, I got into the wire. I don't know about the rest. <laughs> Who can be saved? And Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Which means even us rich people can be saved. <laughs> which means even those who have can be saved. Because again, it has nothing to do with the possessions. It has nothing to do with the net worth. It has everything to do with the worth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so whether we have a lot or we have a little, it's really beside the point. But poor Mary was blessed. Poor, impoverished Mary says, Behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. And by the way, that's not a command. She's not saying, All generations shall speak me as the blessed virgin. 
<laughs> no, she's saying this is what's going to happen. And she was right. And it has happened. And all generations have looked back and said, wow, what an amazing life. What an amazing young girl that God would choose her. She has been counted blessed. I love what J. Vernon McGee says. He says, we don't need to make her a goddess and kneel before her. But we do need to call her blessed. We should not play it down. We should not play it up either. Now, Mary, like uh, many little girls, I'm sure grew up playing with dolls, imagining the day she'd be a mama. I know in our culture someone might say, well, Rick, that is just so sexist. Well, okay. It's true. Have I I told you this story before? It's absolutely true. The the difference between little boys and little girls is just stunning. You don't have to tell them to act like little boys and little girls. They do. They just naturally do. i never forget, years and years ago, Corey and Hannah are playing Mario Kart. Okay, and, and, and they were young. This is right when it had first come out, so this is a long time ago. And they're down there playing, two little kids playing Mario Kart, and Corey is winning the game. He is about winning the game, getting around the track. First one around the track wins, and he is targeted and focused, and he's winning. And Hannah's off driving off to Princess Peach's castle. <laughs> Remember that? And Corey, you know, he's he's like, come on, because then he wins the game and he has to wait for her while she putters along. I'm going to go see Toad now. It's hilarious. Women drivers. What? Women drivers. Yeah, women drivers. Get off, go see Princess Pete. I didn't say it. That was Kyle. Kyle Reamer for those women. But here's Mary. And imagining, as, as so many little girls do, the day that you know, she's going to be married, imagining what her wedding is going to be like, and imagining when she would be a mama. How do you get ready for a child like Jesus? How do you prepare for that? And yet, number four, if you're taking notes, Mary was prepared. Mary was prepared. She was positioned. She was, of course, poor. I don't know what the other one was, but she was that too. Number four, (laughs) Mary purposed. Exactly. Mary was prepared. Look at verse 49. She says, For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. And He's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the empty-handed, the, the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel His servant in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His descendants forever. Gang, the theology in Mary's Magnificat is absolutely astounding. To take the time and go point by point through the Magnificat and look at it theologically, it sings of God's great mercy to all generations. Psalm 103 verse 17 says, The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children. The the Magnificat shouts of the mighty deeds of God's arm. Psalm 98 verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for Him. The Magnificat soars. It declares His majesty, deposing kings and exalting the humble. Book of Job, chapter 5, verse 11. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. And then, the Magnificat, Mary speaks of His provision to the hungry. Psalm 107, verse 9. For He has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul He has filled with what is good. The Magnificat shows His unconditional love for Israel. Genesis 15, verse 5, tells us God took Abram outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Genesis 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Are you picking up what Mary's putting down here? 
Let me give you a little more hint about what's happening in the Magnificat. Jot these down if you can write quickly. Genesis 15 and 17. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3. These verses are not up there behind me, so if you want to jot them down, I suggest you do so quickly. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3. 1 Samuel, just write 1 Sam. Chapter 1, verse 11. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Job, chapter 5, verse 11. And several psalms here. Psalm 71, verse 19. Psalm 89, verses 13 and 14. Psalm 98, verses 2 and 3. Psalm 103, verse 17. Psalm 107, verse 9. Isaiah. Isaiah 41, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 61, verse 10. Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 18. Bang, in Mary's little 10-verse Magnificat, she quotes Hebrew Scripture over 15 times. And you need to understand, she's 14, 15, maybe 16 years old. Can you imagine, Jay? A little 14-year-old girl comes in and quotes that much Scripture all at once in one song. And by the way, spontaneously, she hasn't been rehearsing it, she hasn't been studying it, it's just what came out of her because of what has gone into her. This girl was prepared. This girl knew the Word. And understand, if the Lord, if you can imagine the Lord in heaven going, whom shall I choose to bear the Word of God? How about a girl in whom the Word of God already was implanted? And she would bear Jesus, the Word of God, because in Mary, the Word was already there. She already had an amazing understanding for such a young woman. How do you prepare for the unforeseen circumstances of your life? How do you get ready for what's about to come that you don't even know about? The roles that God has prepared for you. How do you ready yourself for those? The Word, the Word, the Word. Get the Word inside. Because the Word prepares you for things that you can't even see. Mary didn't know. Had no idea what was coming. But somehow, in the house in which she grew up, this maiden knew the Word of God. Had the Hebrew Scripture down. Had a solid biblical theology that comes pouring out of her in this Magnificat. Absolutely amazing. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? I think we could apply that to the ladies. How can a young person keep their way pure? By keeping it according to your word. I've had a few people bring up and talk about, in fact it's been source of a lot of conversation, how are we really going to be prepared for shifting out of the barn and into that new building? It's become a reality. How are we going to do that without, you know, shaking apart as a church, without losing our focus? It's very simple. The Word. The Word. The Word. We stay in the Word. We will continue to be in the Word. We're in the Word in the barn. We're going to be in the Word in the bigger barn. We're just going to stay in the Word. Because the Word prepares us for what we cannot see coming, just as it did Mary. And I would encourage you, all those verses I gave you, go back, look them up. Compare them to the Magnificat. It's absolutely stunning what this young girl knew. Now there's one more thing. Just one this morning about Mary that played into her special role in history. It's something actually pre-Magnificat, but it's something that I couldn't let go by. I believe that this ordinary girl was chosen for this extraordinary life. First and foremost, because, number five, Mary was pure. Mary was pure. Isaiah told us she would be. Isaiah 7.14 Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1 verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? Literally, since I have known no man. Jim pointed out to me an article 
this last week. Interesting. I want to read an excerpt of this for you. It's an article out of, uh, from Slate.com. A woman writing said, despite what the preponderance of nativity scenes on display this time of year might suggest, it seems that there's actually a Savior born on the regular here in the United States. New research published in the British Medical Journal finds that roughly 1 in 200 pregnant young American women claim to be virgins. According to a national longitudinal study of adolescent health, out of 5,340 adolescent girls who reported a pregnancy, 45 claimed to be pregnant without admitting to, uh, researchers at least, that they had ever had relations with a man. How on earth can women think of themselves as virgins despite having gone through a pregnancy? Well, researchers have a few suggestions. The most obvious, based on how many virgin mother experiences there are, is that cultural mores highly valuing virginity among these virgin mothers, the reason is plain denial. Now, it may may seem foolish at first, but as historian Hannah Blount pointed out in her book, Virgin, the Untouched History, there isn't a medical definition of virginity, so who is and isn't one has always been hotly debated. (laughs) There is one way to be absolutely certain if you are a virgin or not. One way. Mary had never known a man. She had never had the contact. There had never been any fooling around, never any messing around, never any crossing the line or coming close to the line or or toying with. She had never known a man. You want to know that you are and claim virginity, those of you pre-marriage? It's very simple. You're a virgin if you've never been with a man, girls. Guys, you're a virgin if you've never been with a woman. It's that simple. I don't know why it's even debated. Well, actually, I do know why it's debated. It's called sin. Because I want to know how far I can go. That was the number one question. When we would talk about sex and and sexual things in youth ministry, back in my youth ministry days, the number one question teenagers asked, I don't know if they're still asking, but it's how far is too far? Well, why are they asking that? Because they want to know how far they can go. Where's the line? And the problem when we ask where the line is, is we want to see how close to the line we can get. I'm going to get right up next. I'm going to get real cozy with the line. How far is too far? Where do I where do I stop? I always told kids, well, just you know, do whatever you would do if Jesus was sitting in the car with you. <laughs> Makes it real simple. <laughs> Mary had never known the intimacies that our Creator designed for a man and a woman to share and the security and the sanctity of marriage. Oh, I know that's not culturally relevant anymore. I don't care. I know that our culture thinks that it's gained a wisdom beyond the Scriptures. Well, it's just absolute stupidity. It's foolishness. It's lies. And it's not just our teenagers who deal with this. Mary, think about this. What if she had known a man? What if Mary and Joseph had messed around? What if Mary had a backlog of boyfriends there in Nazareth and, you know, it had kind of gone too far? Oh, she still would have been loved by God. Absolutely. He still would have offered her His forgiveness, His redemption, His salvation, His grace, like anyone who comes to Jesus believing. How can you be sure? Well, because I know women like Tamar and Rahab, the harlot, Bathsheba, all three of those names are in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. All three of those women graced forgiven, drawn into the lineage by the grace of God. But had Mary messed around, had Mary known a man, I can tell you one thing for sure, she would not have been pure. It is what it is, gang. Loved by God? Yes. Welcomed by grace? Absolutely. But Mary could not have been a candidate to carry and bear God's perfect Son. She had to be pure. And this is a lesson our culture has rejected, about which even our churches are becoming increasingly tentative. It takes Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty to stir up the conversation. (laughs) 
it's just so funny to me. He, he just he just said what the Bible said in his own way. And people are just furious. How dare you have an opinion that's different than mine? It's you're a bigot. No, he's just sharing an opinion. Why are you so upset? I'll tell you why. Sin's upsetting. None of us want to get called on our rebellion. Don't you tell me what I'm doing is not right. Don't you accuse me of impurity. I'm pure. Are you? What are you doing? We can call ourselves pure all we want. But are we? I wonder how we ever let it get this far in the country. How do we get to the place that we're at? I see Christians even lining up on both sides of this recent debate. And yet I hear the Lord say very clearly in His Word this, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Now, if you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6.18, you don't need to right now, but if you do, you'll see it says flee immorality. The word immorality is pornea, where we get pornography, and it means sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know? Now, this is the, the kicker here. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Christians, listen. Your body belongs to Jesus. Your body, we say temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's make that a little more personal. Your body is Jesus' house. It's where Jesus lives. It's where He wants to reside. And when we take these bodies and hand them over to adultery, (coughs) sexual affairs, pornography, premarital sex, fooling around, messing around, even those phrases, well, we're just fooling around. Yeah, because you're a fool. You know? We're just messing around. No. You're taking the holy house of Jesus Christ and you're putting it in a place that is impure. Mary comes along Chosen by God, first and foremost, because she was pure. This is a lesson. I originally wrote, this is a lesson our young people are not getting. They're not hearing. I I changed it to, this is a lesson our people are not getting. Because more and more, as I walk down this road, the sexual impurity among adults is astounding to me. And, And I want to tell you this morning, and I don't know this, because I don't really, you know... I'm not aware in our fellowship of this kind of thing going on. But I'll tell you what, if you are in the middle of an affair, if you're in an adulterous relationship, if you're having sex outside of the marital bond, you are subjecting the house of Jesus to impurity. And that's huge. And that should stop you this morning and turn you around. And the thing that we're not getting and the thing you will never hear in sex ed in the high schools or junior highs or even elementary schools these days, the thing you will never hear is every time you engage in sexual sin, you damage the very place Jesus would grow. The heart. I know, some would embarrassingly say, oh, Pastor Rick, give it up. It's just the way of the world. Yeah, but it's not the way of God. It is not His way. Mary knew that she needed a Savior, but in this area of her life, Mary was as pure as the new fallen snow. She was a virgin. Mary and Joseph did have a white Christmas. Joseph, God bless him, made sure of that. I love this verse. Matthew one twenty-five. Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now here's the point. Physical purity in Mary established a place in which the Son of God could grow. You get it? The physical purity in Mary established that place. This maiden, purposed in mind, positioned in heart, poor in spirit, prepared by the Word, pure in body, gave place to the Lord in her life. And so, the Lord Jesus took up natal residence, if you will, 
in Mary's womb, in her body. And listen, Jesus grew there. What a beautiful picture. What an intimate picture for you and for me. A picture of growing grace. Let me ask you the question, do you want Christ to grow in you? You see, Jesus can't grow in an impure body. Grace doesn't expand in a body that's given over to sin. And we damage the process. Physically speaking, we damage the process spiritually, emotionally. And those are the two elements that are never taught in sex ed. The spiritual impact and the emotional impact of what's going on, of the choices that are being made. Turning your Bible over to Psalm 132. I'm going to end there. Psalm 132. I want to read this because I believe it's the attitude that the Lord would develop in us, that He wants us to have. Psalm 132 is a great song of a sense, a song probably of David or at least about David, about David's offspring. So in essence, it's about Jesus. But just a couple of verses here. Verse 3, 4, 5. Surely I will not enter my house, nor lie on my bed, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Now see, that was David's promise. David said, I'm not going to rest until I build him a temple. Look, I've got this great palace and Jerusalem secure and I have peace in the land and and God's got a tent. So I want to build him a temple. And God says, David, you can't do it. Well, why not? you got blood on your hands. See, David had an impurity on his hands so that he could not build the house of the Lord. Only his son Solomon then could come along and do that. David was impure. Couldn't build the house. But the call to us, I will not rest until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. So to our young people, I would say, establish a dwelling place for the Mighty One now, today. A place of purity in your heart in which Jesus can grow and grow His grace in you and to not-so-young people. I believe the Lord calls us to embrace that purity. To say, this is the standard by which I will live my life. And if you've given up, or you've given in, if you're one who might say, I lost my purity a long time ago. You might say, I'm no Mary, I could never be. Well, here's grace. The wounded womb can be healed. But only by the precious blood of Jesus. The most damaged heart can be restored and established to become the dwelling place of the Spirit of Christ. So come back to Bethlehem. Come back to the manger. Let Christ be birthed in you anew. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, come be born again. And embrace the purity that God has for you. Believe, repent, and live. Because a life in Christ, gang, it's rejoicing in spirit. And it's magnifying God in soul. And it is growing in grace. And it's a supernatural thing. And God's invited us to that. Everyone was talking about Elizabeth. Everyone was talking about Zacharias. While the hidden truth was going on. The most profound work of God was a mystery to most And you know what? The work of grace is kind of like that. The work of grace is a mystery. It's often a hidden thing. Colossians 3 verse 3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Let's stand up together. Hey, John, can you put up uh, the last verse of Silent Night one more time? We'll just sing that together before we go out. Let's bow and pray.
Our most holy Jesus. I think one of the things I love so much about this time of year is we pause and recognize how profoundly mysterious and wonderful your coming into the world truly was. And what a marvelous decision that you had made long before, Father, from the foundations of the earth for Jesus to come and to be birthed of Mary and to live a sinless life and to teach and preach and and do the miraculous to seek and to save the lost. And then to die on the cross in that horrific death. To be buried and three days later to rise again, resurrected to eternal life. A life that you have promised for anyone who would give their lives, their hearts to you. And Father, that's my greatest desire. And I know it's yours as well for this fellowship. Is that we be a place that embraces those lost that accepts and loves those who are impure, that draws in and invites those whose lives are ridden with sin, that they might become cleansed and forgiven and healed and purified and sanctified in Jesus. And it's my hope and my prayer, Father, this morning. There are those here this morning, this hour and perhaps next, Lord, who are struggling with impurity, struggling with choices that have been made in the past, struggling with choices being made right now, struggling in relationship and seeking some kind of, I don't know, affection or some kind of worth that cannot be found outside of Jesus. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that You would grace us this morning with the spirit of forgiveness and with Your spirit of loving kindness and Your spirit of compassion. And I ask, Lord, that anyone who hears these words and compares themselves to the purity of Mary and falls woefully short as most of us do, that you would speak words of peace and welcome and forgiveness into our lives. And for those who are standing strong in this area, Father, there are areas of impurity in all of our lives. We pray for a washing by the water and the Word. We pray for a cleansing to take place. And for that precious reminder that, Lord, you would grow grace in us. Father, for my part, I pray that I would be one who lives a life that grows grace. And I ask for each of us, Father, we would have bodies, minds, and spirits that are focused on You and allow You to do Your perfect work. Father, bless this fellowship this morning. And may the truth of Your Word sink deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.